There's something going on here. We're like-minded rebels, dude. Fucking punk rock, man. Yeah, Just that's what I'm saying. Rock, this is what I'm saying. I love finding the kid that is authentic and doing it and giving him a shot. People becoming closer <laughs> through understanding our differences. This is how it ties together. Well, the union, Jack. Damn. My life changed when I found simultaneously skateboarding and punk music. It looks to me like a quantum leap of creativity to me. Again, turning people's problems into your asset. Yeah, yeah. Punk rock. I guess the idea has always been let's do fun stuff, not let's do stuff to make money. And that's kind of been the guiding path. It's just been like poking fun at the whole idea, like subverting it. Like, you know what? This is a joke. You know how this works. The kids aren't stupid. For me, it's all one thing. It's all one form of expression. Just because I'm a skateboarder doesn't mean my, my art is about skateboarding. I say to be fucking great or have a B plan. Uh, think fast, skate faster, and don't look back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me, I just keep going forward, burying myself in creativity. Which is why I'm not a rich man. But in another way, I'm fucking loaded, dude. Yeah. 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 Greetings, I'm Don Letts and welcome to the second edition of Joining the Dots. For this edition, I sat down with California-based artist, skateboarder and entrepreneur, Ed Templeton. Ed is one of the most influential skateboarders in the history of the sideways sliding subculture. Not only did the Huntington Beach skateboarder come to define the street skating explosion of the 1990s, he went on to become one of the most renowned artists and photographers to be associated with the beautiful losers, a bunch of left-field creatives turning Southern California's sun-soaked aesthetic on its head. Ed is an accomplished businessman too, having founded Toy Machine, one of the most well-respected skater-owned, skater-run enterprises in the industry. Ed and I sat down recently while he was in London for his group photo show, Xenophobia, and we found out we had more in common than we would have imagined. I've got to be honest with you, before we got to do this thing, my knowledge of skateboards is probably that some of the brothers like a bit of reggae, some of them don't mind a bit of weed, and I have a passion for the odd pair of vans, but it's kind of distant to me. I've seen, was it Z-Town and the Dog Boys? Yeah. But um, I didn't realise until I started looking up your shit how complete a subculture it was. I've got to be honest with you, man. I mean, I knew there's other little oh, things yeah. going on, and it almost kind of predates punk to me, because the skateboarders I met were informed by punk, but I'm looking at the history of the whole skateboard world, the whole DIY thing, the alternative life, lifestyle, the art that came out of it, and it seems to have predated punk to me. Is that, have I got it right? To me, punk and skateboarding went together. They evolved together. I mean, I think what was then, happening in your generation yeah. here in the UK was super specific in the beginning of it, and simultaneous, and what, what, so what was like, well, over here what was 77. that punk explosion? 77. And I was gonna say, but the skateboard thing. So skateboarding was earlier, because yeah. I would say it was in the 60s, Yeah. but you know, it started from these surfer kids who, you know, when the waves were flat. Down time yeah you know yeah they would kind of like kids would use these scooters and and i learned from craig stesick who's in the z boys movie he's one of the original guys who you know really conceptualized it was able to put it into words first you know he he was a part of this scene but was able to write an article about he wrote a famous article in the skateboard magazine like basically showing everybody this is an art form this is a lifestyle this is something new happening he's the one who put it into terms i'm hearing this from this guy himself like this you know legendary uh early pioneer of skateboarding and this is what period this is this is he 
he's telling me about his like you know early 60s kind yeah. of thing you know so he's he's a surfer he's going you know they would go and steal skates they would go to college he was telling me he'd go to college campuses in wintertime and all the he said all the girls would put their skates out on the balconies of the, of the college dorm and they'd r- scamper up there and like steal the roller skates fucking punk rock man yeah it's that's what I'm saying rock. this is what I'm saying this is this is the this is how it ties Never together mind the union jack Damn. This is how it ties together, <laughs> honestly. Because and, and Craig's the perfect example of this because it was fully punk what he was doing. What they were doing, my understanding of punk is that you know they were like breaking the skates apart, putting it on the boards, and so it's DIY, surfing. DIY culture. And even in that, there. even in that yeah. documentary, they talk they talk about kind of like the two sides at that po- at that point in the mid '60s where they're you know it was like the Z boys were the were the hardcore guys, the punk guys, and then there was like some you know the other guys, the freestyle guys were like you know not as cool, and they, you know so when they came in on the scene. It was like, here's the rough dogs, you know? And it's probably informed by, like, Easy Rider and stuff. And, like, all these kind of, like, yeah. rebel outside things informed the very nugget of skateboarding was that. Was this, like, do-it-yourself, fuck everybody. Yeah. We're doing this stuff. And, and with Craig being one of the guys who sort of guided it, he's just, like, subversive to the core with everything, you know? It's, like, graffiti, everything. And then it evolved from, like, the going down a hill and just pretending you're surfing to skating pools. And that's where it fully becomes punk because it's just, like, everything about it is illegal. You're jumping over fences, skating people's empty backyard pools, the cops are kicking you out. And turning problems into assets is another classic punk thing. I mean, the fact that when the waves are flat, that's a problem, so you decide to come up with a surfboard. And then the pool thing happened after droughts and things, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's been yeah. California droughts all the time. Or, or, pe- or, like, you know, especially now with the foreclosures. Punk ideas, man. And this is all no, pre and this 77. Is, and this is the thing. And even so, even when I come into it, and like I start skating in 86, punk was my direct entry into it. Like, honestly, my life changed when I found simultaneously skateboarding and punk music. Oh, I'm curious. At your age, what did that mean? What was punk music? This is like Dead Kennedys, oh, cool. California punk at that Uber point. You know, yeah. I've worked with, okay, okay. Dead Kennedys, uh, Seven Seconds, The Germs, these, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. stuff at that era. And the kids I got it from were the punk kids. So I'm alienated to some extent. I'm a nerd. Like, you know, I'm not popular in, in class or anything like that. You're just a kid, just don't know what you're doing. I got interested in skateboarding. Went to school with a skateboard, and the first people to say, "Hey, you have a skateboard? Come hang out with us." It was this kid Ron who had a mohawk, and as much as I was scared of him, it was kind of like these are the only kids that are cool to me. Like no one in the school was talking to me, or you know, I felt like really alienated. So suddenly, I'm just invited into this like culture with these bad boys. You know, I'm a suburban white kid, and there's suburban white kids rebelling against their families, and I had sort of like-minded rebels. Yeah, so it's all you know. We all came from broken homes and shitty families, and to me, it, it was always ridiculous, like wearing a mohawk or externally showing it, you know? I've just been more of an internal, like, the attitude is what it's about. I'm glad you said that, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because all those guys that thought it was just about fast guitars and safety pins, I mean, to me, like you said, it was always about an attitude and a spirit. Yeah. My understanding of punk was, like, the least punk thing is, like, spending four hours fixing your mohawk to go outside today. (laughs) It's like, that's not punk, what I understand as punk. Punk is, like, not giving a fuck. I mean, over here, a lot of that shit was created by the media. And the minute that people started to identify with that as punk, the smart people moved on and did other things. And that's when it got interesting, because the thing about that punk label thing is it very quickly... As much as it was empowering and inspiring, it also became a trap. It's like in a minute you give something a label, it yeah, becomes defined and that's all boxer, it can yeah. be. And it was never, it was supposed to be something that could keep developing, expanding, and like skateboarding. I mean, it seems to me that's adapted itself all the way from the 60s right through to the 21st century, where it's now a fucking Always multi-billion evolving. pound Always industry. Evolving, yeah.
anyway, um, and it was a similar thing where I saw, saw Bob Marley play in like 1975, a gig in London, Hammersmith Odeon, and I followed his coach back to his hotel and basically kind of hustled my way in with the musicians as they walked into his room and uh, sat down in a corner and Bob was sat in a room and he's smoking to all the kind of London rusters, the elders, and he's smoking and about three in the morning he's out-reasoned, as they call it, it was like having a conversation, he'd out-reasoned and out-smoked everybody and he looks around the room and he sees me sitting in a corner, my little dread and my pathetic little bag of weed and he summons me to the table and uh, proceeded to finish my weed. But <laughs> <laughs> By the end of that, we made struck up a brief relationship, and when he was staying here in '77, to be quite honest, I used to sell him weed. I don't do it anymore. As a, you know, as a child, I was trying to make some, make a buck. But um, so over about a year, two or three years, I had a, a, a. I mean, people say we were friends. I mean, I'd an acquaintances, I'd call it really. I mean, the real story out of that was when I went around to collect some money off him. He owed me some money, and I was. This is in '77. I'm not. I'm not like the Don Letts you see now. I was like a kid, you know, I was trying to work my shit out. But I went around there wearing bondage trousers these punk things. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, he'd obviously been reading the press and they painted a very negative image of what punk was about. Right. So I walk in, he's like, Don Letts, you look like one of them nasty blood clark punk rock. In English, he says, Don Letts, you look like one of those nasty punk rockers. And basically, I had to stand my ground and sort of try and defend my white friends as they were then. Yeah. And said, Bob, look, you know, they're wrong. There's something going on here. We're like-minded rebels, dude. And he basically said, get the fuck out of here. You know, with a smile on his face. Three months later, after he'd become a bit more familiar with the whole scene, he was moved to write that song, Punky Reggae Party. So from my perspective, I always got the last laugh, but yeah. it was a tough call, yeah, defending my white friends to a man who was definitely a legend then. Yeah. But didn't you stalk Gonzalez? I read a thing that well, you followed him back to his place. Here's what happened, it was interesting. I was so new to skateboarding that the friend I was with, we went to a skate shop to look at, you know, we're poor little kids, we couldn't afford anything, and we just like, you know, go up to the sticker case and look at the stickers. We just like, you know, drool over the stickers. Stickers. <laughs> Not know, the yeah. skateboard, just, just the ridiculous. stickers. Just ridiculous. No, I mean, really, yeah. yeah. We were just like, oh, that. And, uh, and so Mark Gonzalez walks in the shop. He lives in Huntington Beach. I didn't even know about him, you know, and my friend starts freaking out. I'm like, oh, there's Mark Gonzalez. And I go, who's that? And he's like, points to a board on the wall, like that guy. And I see the board, Mark Gonzalez. I'm like, oh, wow. All this is like hitting me. Like, these guys live like, I don't, you know, I just, I was that new to it. I just was like learning how to ollie. And so my friend said, let's follow him. <laughs> so he followed him to his house, which is right around the corner, apparently. And there was a quarter pipe there um, where these kids, you know, some kids were skating. And of course, Mark shows up and they all sit down like, oh my God, you know, Mark Gonzalez here. Well, let's watch him skate. And I, again, didn't know that I was supposed to be in awe of this person. So I skated the quarter. So it was just me and Mark Gonzalez skating the quarter pipe. A little kid who knows nothing skating this quarter pipe with this legend, already a legend in 86, you know. How he, old was he then? He was, he must have been young. I don't I mean, gosh, he's probably your age. So what What were you in 86? I mean, 18. I mean, maybe he was 19 or 20 or something. Yeah. But he's, I mean, he was young. I mean. Shit. Well, was he doing his own graphics then? Because that was the thing that drew you to him, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the second part of his influence on me and all skateboarding <laughs> as a whole, um, was that once I started learning about the skate culture, certain, a couple of the pros did their own skateboard graphics. Mark Gonzalez, Neil Blender, Chris Miller, some of my favorite guys. So I made a mental vow at that point, like if I ever get to be a pro, that's what I want to do, my own graphics, you know? And, the, and the graphics on the skateboards, was that an extension of designs that were happening on surfboards or was, was, did that happen in its own 
tune right. It's kind of its own thing because the surfboard designs, you know, they were- Minimal, more minimal. Yeah, I mean, just like pinstriping and stuff like that. I mean, uh, yeah, so like, you know, skateboard graphics. And in the 80s, it was a thing, the boards would stay out for a lot longer. The board, you know, board might hit the shop and be out for a year or six months. So the graphic was important. And also the kids rode rails. I mean, are you familiar with like these little plastic things on the bottom of the board that help you do a board slide or something? So the graphics would be sort of protected, but that all kind of evolved later. I've identified skateboarding culture as a complete subculture, which is kind of new to me, I'll be honest. What are the elements that would make it complete? You know, what are the different aspects, the creative aspects of skateboarding? I think it evolved, it started spreading out to everything. I mean, my look at it is that it was, it did spring from sort of a punk ethos. Hip hop absorbed it immediately, like, or, or vice versa. They absorbed each other immediately, yep. immediately, because essentially a lot of skateboarding happens in, in the city, in inner cities. You know, it's like, that's where the cement is. That's where, it's not in the countryside, you know, it's in the city where the cement is, where the plazas are. And it's something that poor people can do. I mean, that's the, one of my big connections to it too, was just like, I, we couldn't afford anything, you know? I was, my first board was just Frankenstein together from parts from kids I know, you know? It wasn't like we went to a store and bought a board. It was just, I found a pair of trucks, I found some stuff, you just, was scrape everything together. And I grew up in Huntington Beach where it was surf culture, you know, it's like, in theory, I should have been a surfer, but I couldn't afford a wetsuit and a board. So I just became, you know, became a skater instead. To me, it's complete because it's just like a fully contained thing. Everything was just done by ourselves. And there's skateboard bands, there's skate, what is skate punk? There was some like skate rock and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, everyone get, I, that's the label I hate is like, someone calls me a skartist, a skate artist or something. You know, it's like, yes, I document Photographically, this uh, skateboard scene, but my like my paintings, for instance, have nothing to do with skateboarding. Yeah. I just I happen to be a skateboarder. That's like lazy journalism, though, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. I mean, that's just the boxing thing. Everyone wants to put it in a category so you can label it and then forget it, <laughs> kind of thing, and not have to deal with it in a real way. Just because I'm a skateboarder doesn't mean my my art is about skateboarding or anything like that. Like I'm a creative, pro and that's like someone like Gons. I mean, Gons is a genius. He's He's done everything, and it's all in Sharpie form. You know, he's just doing it, and like, there's nothing he hasn't done. He's got mental problems, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of what makes him amazing and crazy. And like, and you know, he's one of those guys who did everything. He's like a Basquiat, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat yeah, yeah, no, type I, of person. I happen you know, to know Jean. I remember sitting down with Jean and asking him to sell me something. He's like, "I'll do you a deal, man. I'll do it." Like, it's like five thousand dollars he wanted, but even that was like 30, 40 years ago, and I was like. Oh, and now if I, you know what I mean? Fuck. <laughs> Man. And it's funny, somebody just showed me some books with his, his diaries. And then one of the pages is, Don Letts, he's got my name. And then there's another big book that's just come out. I don't know why, he must have, I must have stuck in his head because he's written my name in like three places in this page and part of his art. Could I get one? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the creative people I know, music's been their kind of gateway to a lot of creativity. But everything you did seems to be in spite of music. Is that right? I was completely musically challenged as a, as a as a as a kid. You know, I grew up in pure white suburbia. I mean, the place where I grew up is the effect of white flight out of L.A. My grandfather told me about this. You know, he lived in Baldwin Hills, which is a black area of L.A. When the when the African Americans became upwardly mobile and started moving in his neighborhood, he was telling me he's like, yeah, I mean, everyone was freaking out and moving out to the suburbs. <laughs> like, let's go yeah, yeah, yeah. down. And he's just like, I moved to the suburbs too. Like, yeah. not not necessarily because I was afraid, but just you know, it's just because I was you afraid. Can, you can, no, because you, I mean, yeah. well, he is no, an, he is an older man, so he probably had. No, it. I can dig that generation being spooked by that. Huh? 
<laughs> no pun intended. It's true. It's true, though. You know, and yeah. you know, potentially he was. I mean, but you know, there's also like you know, you could get a bigger house for yeah. you know. That, there's that aspect too. But you know, so I'm growing up now in a in an environment. I was born into it, of course. I'm just like born into this place that was you know essentially built out of fear. So I was just kind of grew up with you know my mother. She had brain damage when she was a baby, which kind of stunted her growth uh, mentally. So she was. I quickly surpassed her in intellect, you know, essentially parenting myself at an early age, you know. And then uh, with my dad leaving, my grandparents were my were my real cultural touchstones and father figure and, and mother figure, essentially. I feel lucky about that because I feel like having a, a person born in the 1920s raising you gave me a cool insight, yeah. like the, the language they use, the way they conducting themselves, they're part of the greatest generation kind of thing. I learned a lot of stuff from that. I feel like I was always an older person because of that. You know, I'm around my young skate friends, but I know about this poetry and this, these like words yeah, and these yeah. things that my grand <coughs> that my grandfather would uh, would tell me about. So musically now, I'm listening to nothing. You know, the radio. I'm re the radio. So at that time, it's like Cindy Lauper and like Michael Jackson. And yeah. as a kid, I'm just yeah. like listening to the radio. It's like so stupid. You know, I was skating with Jason Lee, who's like an actor now and everything. Uh, he had a Beastie Boys album. So we, you know, <sighs> how white is that in a way? It's like yeah. white suburban kid like identifying with the Beastie Boys suddenly. So you do stuff with the Beasties? You do know the Beasties? Because they're I, good friends. I met him. Uh, <laughs> I met him after you know after yeah. the fact, but. Um, yeah, we knew MCA and like, but like, you know, it was like such a cool guy that he would remember us. Like, yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of thing like I'm meeting him and talking to him a little bit, but it's like, they won't remember us. Like, and yeah, then, but yeah. next time they'd be like, hey, no, what's up? Cool. Like he they, remembered they definitely Deanna. are cool. But then I met Deanna, who before meeting me, was going to every single punk show in LA, everything. She saw the Smiths in 84. You saw, you were seeing like, you know, adolescence and all this stuff in like the early 80s. So I meet her and her brother's a big record collector and guitar collector and, so I, you know, I kind of like start dating a girl who is going, this stuff sucks, this stuff is good. You know, like here's what to listen to, you know? Like, I mean, The Clash and like, we were listening to Jane's Addiction and stuff at that point, and like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, Fish Bone and like. But it's fair to say your creativity wasn't fueled by music. I don't, I wouldn't say like the big chunk of it was from music, but it's a part of it for sure. But I don't know if it's the like the main pillar, let's say, of like where that informed me. But I would say that once I found punk, punk at that point was about the lyrics, you know? And I've always been a lyrical person. Like I like bands that are just good musically and it's like they're just talking gibberish. I mean, my first concert was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I identified way more with Dead Kennedys and stuff because of the political, political yeah. lyrics. And then for me, like the real come together point was Fugazi. Right. Minor okay. Threat, Minor Fugazi, Threat, okay. Rites of Spring. Yeah, yeah. The spring. shit gets serious. The music is insane and good, but they're saying something. That was important to me. That was, as a creative touchstone, that was probably it. Like I wanted to, everything I did to say something. What's he up to now? I wanted now? my art to say stuff. So. Ian Mackay, what's he up to now? We're friends. To, uh, we're, oh, really? We, we got to meet. That's, this, is the, this is the thing, you know? So I'm a huge fan for years. I have a friend, this guy, O, Otis Bartholomew. He's like a big music guy. You know, he knows everybody. He's a big music guy. This guy, oh, gets me into a, uh, a Fugazi concert backstage. You know, he's just like, go backstage. He's like, I didn't get you this ticket. Ian got you this ticket. He knows who you are. Go say hi to him. Go up and introduce yourself to Ian. I'm freaking out. I don't want, like, I'm scared of yep. Ian. He seems so intense. And like, you know, and like, I'm really scared. But I finally, like, get up the bravery. Like, there he is. There's, there's a free moment. I'm, I walk up to him. I'm like, 
hi, like Ian McKay, I'm at Templeton. He's like, oh yeah, I read all your interviews. You know, I know you're a skater. So it just broke the ice immediately because he just was like, hey, I'm a fan of you. You know, you're freaking out on a guy like worried about meeting him. And then he tells you that he's a fan of yours. So, you know, it was kind of cool. And then we just started being friends. We'd write each other letters. I, he said I could use his music for free in our skate videos, which we were making, which was helpful for us because we don't have a lot of money to be buying music for right. videos and stuff like that. So it was kind of cool. What's he actually doing now? I'm curious. He still does Discord. He's like, doing the same thing. Okay. He does a band called uh, The Evens. Fugazi had to kind of break up because everyone has families and yeah. kids now. And the reality and like, bites. Yeah, the reality <laughs> comes in. So him and this girl, Amy Farina, his wife now, do, does this band called The Evens. It's just basically a drum and a bass. I'll have to check that out, man. I'm yeah, really curious. Yeah, really cool. When does business come into the equation? And almost you become a professional almost skater. Almost immediately, you know? Yeah, immediately. I mean, this is the thing that's weird is like, I'm growing up with a grandfather who's my father, coming from a generation who just has no idea. He sees skateboarding as the stupidest thing I could be doing. And I don't disagree with him. From his perspective, I agree. I, I would see that and go, okay, I get it. He came from a generation of like, get a job, support your family, be a man. I'm out there skateboarding, spending all my time skateboarding. He just saw it as like a toy, it's totally stupid. Until I brought the check home. You know, I got sponsored, turned pro, and go check this out, $3,000 in one month for skateboarding. To his credit, he's just like went, I get it. <laughs> like, this is amazing, you, you know, you're doing it. Like, what a surprise. You gotta, get, you gotta get out of the house. See yeah. you later. You know, like, you're making Go get money. skating. Basically, yeah, see you yeah. later. I mean, yeah. my mom was on a government assistance kind of thing. And the fact that I was in the household and the, if I was gonna make money, she would be kicked off of it. So he's just like, you're either gonna help your mom or you're gonna leave the house. He's like, I think you should leave the house so your mom can stay on this program. As soon as I started making money, I was out of the house at 18, which is, which is good. Good yeah, time my, for that. My parents didn't take me seriously until they saw me on the TV. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of yeah, what it was. Yeah, yeah. Until I brought that check home, yeah. thought I was wasting my time. And then he's like, okay, I, I kind of get it. You know, here's a board with my name on it. Look, there's a thing that says Ed Templeton on it that people can go buy in the shop, you know. And when the business starts coming into the mix, was there any kind of conflict between the sort of creative aspect and the fact that it's getting business-like? So, yes, business enters immediately. So you turn pro, you know, you're paid to skateboard now. So it changes a little bit. You have to, I mean, in the early 90s, there wasn't videos and the magazines. Like all we had to really do was just show up to the contests that were three or four times a year, you know, and maybe get some photos in the magazines here and there. So I could be a great pro if I got a magazine every month in the, which means I had to go out one weekend and essentially and get a photo that would be run in the magazine. I was doing a great job. I mean, now it's like daily, you have to go out and really produce. So it's a lot different. And negotiating your creative passion with the business, how do you find dealing with that? Yeah, I think I was talking about how being paid, you have to produce yeah. and stuff like that. And that, that's fine for me up until I started Toy Machine. You know, as a pro, I'm just like, I'm doing my own graphics, I'm having fun, but someone else is paying for it, it's, it's not a big deal. Like, I, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I, I get, I get, I'm the person who's getting flown to the contests in Europe. And then in 93, I started my own company, Toy Machine, and then yeah, then it's all on you. <laughs> like it, I'm paying the bills, I'm paying the skateboarders, I'm like in charge of that stuff. How much is that first class ticket? <laughs> well, it was just, uh, to me the conflict was, and, a, and going back to like my touchstone is Fugazi in this, is like, I was like, okay, I'm doing a company, what's my example here, who am I gonna look at? And I looked at like Discord and what Ian was doing with that stuff. His whole ethos, we're charging $5 for shows, yeah. we're not gouging people, this is a community. I wanted mm. to say like, okay, we're a community, we're not gonna gouge people, and we're gonna poke fun at it. That's the key really for Toy Machine, because luckily I've worked with a business partner that's been in charge of juggling money around type of stuff, and I've been able to escape that and stay on the creative side, which is really, 
helpful for me, but I get to call the shots. So, you know, I get to talk with him about that. But um, poking fun at it was the big thing. I was like, how do I jibe this thing I love and, and cherish and don't want to like kook it out with selling it, which is just the nature of selling something is gross. Yeah. How do you, how do you, <laughs> you know, prevent your passion becoming a commodity? Right, and so, and it, but it is a commodity. So my way to deal with it was just through comedy, basically. So all the toy machine ads and the toy machine style has always just been like joking about the fact that you're buying this thing from us and, and you're gonna like scrape the graphics off in one second and just like poking fun at the whole idea, like subverting it. Like a lot of the companies would be like, here's our cool style and, and our logos. Seriously, yeah. You know, and I was just like, you know what? This is a joke you know how this works the kids aren't stupid you know and a lot of it came from like knowing that the kids knowing that it's my company so like they go this isn't just some corporate guy who's selling a skateboard this is a templeton we've watched him grow up in the skateboard magazines we've seen him skate we've read his interviews we've seen him in the videos so this is the guy that's selling us our boards and like it's skater owned I, i'm a skater i own this thing so i'm well that'll separate you from the rest of, rest of the people that are just using it as a commodity that Somebody passionate is at the head of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, someone they, and someone they know. I have, there's a face to it. I'm not just like some guy behind a desk going, ha ha, I'm making money selling skateboards to kids. It's like, it's me. They know I care about it. And that's That's been a big part of what Toy Machine has been about. Like the one is just that I'm at the helm of it. And then the second part is just not taking ourselves seriously. It's a big joke. It's keeping that punk ethos in place, yeah. right? You it's like, it's yeah, punk. Yeah, it's yeah, like, I, you know, it's a joke. I'm just trying to make kids laugh. I just like write funny stuff and poke holes in the whole idea of like selling a board. I guess the idea has always been, let's do fun stuff not let's do stuff to make money. And that's kind of been the guiding path has just been like, we want to do stuff that we think is fun and cool and interesting. And we don't do stuff just because, hey, this will make us a buck. So, and that's kind of just how we run it. How do you make the leap from toy machine to photography? Well, that's the thing. Uh, a lot of the stuff is happening simultaneously. Um, I turned pro in 1990, I was 18 years old. By 94, I started shooting photos in a serious way. But I think it was 94 that I really realized something like, oh, fuck, I get to live this life. Look at this life I get to live. I get flown around to skateboard. <laughs> people watch me skateboard around the world and that's all I'm doing. It's like literally people fly me there and put me in a hotel just so I can skate in front of this stadium full of kids or something. And the lifestyle that the other kids that I was with was living was like real hard and fast, partying, weed, Eating women, chase, chasing, chasing, yeah. chasing women. Yeah. And then that's the other Rock aspect. Rock and roll, basically. And this is the other aspect we never, we hadn't talked about yet, but like I was always sober the whole time. Like I never smoked a cigarette in my life. I mean, I just like, I don't know what scared me into that at some point, like even growing up around all the punks, they were accepting of that. That was cool. It's like they, you know, passing the joint, I'd be like, nah, I don't want to. And they weren't like, what the fuck, you know, asshole. Straight edge. They were just like, yeah, whatever, you know? See, I never identified as straight edge though, but I hated the idea of like writing an X on my hand and we'd go on skate tours and like the straight edge kids would identify with us because they knew we were not doing drugs and stuff. So they thought we were straight edge. And they'd come up to us and be like, yeah, we were like beating up some guys who were drunk. And I'm like, that's not what I'm about. They came, they've got quite fascistic about that's it. That's what and I mean. So it's it's yeah. a turn into the same, the same thing that they're right. against. It's like, you know, I, I don't, you can do all the drugs you want. Or I don't care at all. You do, you live your you life. Just I'm don't step my on my blue suede shoes. I'm just, yeah, yeah I'm just doing my thing. I don't want to beat someone up because they're drunk or something like that. I, you know, again, the outward show part of it. I never like had a mohawk. I never yeah. had an ex. Uh, like I said, I had a realization around 94. So four years into it living this life, being around these people, it kind of hit me like, 
I had that uh, an epiphany of that of some sort, so like realizing, and it was like the same time that I saw Larry Clark's book, Teenage Lust. Uh, a friend was going on a trip and said, "Hey, take care of my books for me." And one of them was Larry Clark's Teenage Lust, and I'm looking through this, going, "Wow!" Like the photos are intense, and uh, I just had this realization, like I'm living this life right here, but in a different generation and different different crew of people. I should be shooting. This, I should be documenting. It's so like was that teenage kisses and teenage smoking came out of that? Is that came out? Of, that started from there. Yeah. So you know, '94, I just realized like. I'm gonna really carry a camera all the time and start shooting like the skateboard scene specifically. Not skateboard tricks, you know, just like the stuff that we do. We, it's all about What's traveling. What's going on around? Yeah, it's all about traveling. These guys are like traveling, trying to hook up with girls left and right, you know, spending endless hours driving across the country in a van, like, you know. So I was just trying to shoot that. And then focusing on the rock star aspect that some of these guys were taking it as, you know, like we're minor celebrities in our, in our microcosm of skateboarding, you know. It's like in the real world, we're walking down the street Kids are just like, who are these punks, you know? But then in the skateboard world, we're like celebrities. We walk into a place and everyone's cheering and like wanting our autograph and stuff. So it's like fame in a like weird subculture bubble, you know? And I was fish in a small pond. And so some of these guys would that would get to their heads and they would start wearing crazy outfits and like you know acting like rock stars. And so that's the kind of thing that I wanted to shoot and document and just export it because I was like, this could run the risk of being real insidery. But I was trying to look at it like, what if I was trying to explain this to my grandma? How can I show this world? To, to someone else. But then that photography quickly evolved into something else because I've checked your shit out on the net and I've got to say, I'm, not only am I impressed with the range, but I actually like it. Thank you. I've got to say, no, I mean, to put you down as just a skateboarder, to me, seems to be not insulting because I know it's a big part of your life, but these other no, aspects, I, I mean, you know, you've developed in their own right and skateboarding is almost like another bit of it. Yeah, I took my chances. I mean, I think... Uh, I mean, it's sculpture so the, so, and fine art as so well, that, right? So that was photography, but yeah. then painting yeah. started right in 1990. So the same year I turned yeah. pro. And that happened because of skateboarding. And I got sent to Europe, a suburban kid who grew up in California in the suburbs, like very culturally devoid for the most part, except for the saving grace of my grandparents who <coughs> showed me museums and things and art which is probably what put the bug in there. Coming to Europe was really eye-opening. I mean, the public art and the sculpture and just like, because my dad- history, this, you know, Europe's got history. And more, so I'm with know. a group of guys who are like, you know, we're skating the contest, then we're gonna go to the pub. And I'd be like, I don't wanna go to the pub, I'm gonna go to the museum, you know? So I kind of like self-started in that way. I started looking at art. Like I came back from that trip thinking, I'm gonna be a painter. Like naively, you know, I'm like, just, that's it, I'm gonna be a painter, everybody. Like, that's how you start though. You start and it's like, you do you do years of shit work, you know? Uh, Cause you're just like, in, you, you just wanna do it. So I made these, started making paintings. Yeah, but how comes you skip the years of shit work? I did, no, you, that, that, you can't find that stuff <laughs> no, online. You didn't put that out you there. You can't find oh, right. Cause you I'm can't. like, whoa, this guy's skateboarding. I'm like, it looks to me like a quantum leap of creativity to me as no, an outsider. It, it does change, I mean, cause I never went to school for any, anything either. So it was just like all self-taught stuff. and. Uh, But that's interesting you telling me about coming to Europe as a young kid, kid from Huntington Beach, because it kind of reminds me, people forget how young a country America that's is. That's what I mean, the depth of here. Yeah. I mean, just like the signs, the churches, you know, you look at this cathedral and it's like, this was built in 14. I mean, okay, Columbus sailed in 1492 to find the USA, yeah. you know, or whatever. And so this is before that even happened. Like, so that, you know, I'm just blown away in general by Europe. You know, I mean, he's really into this painter, Egon Schiele, he's an Austrian painter, you know, so I just, came home and started painting so in 1990. So I was painting, you know, for years and then my first shows were all painting shows. What's your preferred medium? I use like acrylic paint. Tell me about mistake paint. Mistake paint, oh. I love that, I love that shit, man. Again, turning people's problems into your asset. Yeah, yeah. Punk rock, tell them, tell them about No, I mean, this is paint. this is the whole culture. There's a film, uh, Beautiful Losers, that was made about this whole group of us because 
it all surrounded the alleged gallery. You know, there's this gallery in New York called the Alleged Gallery. This guy, Aaron Rose, who was basically showing artwork by skateboarders specifically. So he was like... Okay, you know, so it's a bit like Fun Gallery was to the uh, graffiti movement. I don't know if you're... No, exa- yeah. yeah, exactly. He was just like showing kind of graffiti kids and skate kids and stuff like that. So I don't even know if he necessarily liked my art at that point. He basically just knew who I was from skateboarding, knew I was a painter, and he was like, hey, if you drive out here, you can have a show here. So I like basically you know again like self a lot of this is just like do it yourself kind of attitude it's just like okay this guy says i have a gallery in new york but i got to get out there you know i'm a pro skater i have a little money i'm renting a car i'm renting a van me and dan are driving putting the paintings in the you know minivan we're driving across to new york and i showed in 94 i showed up to new york and just here i am like to this guy i never met before it's like let's let's do this show and it's like started doing that's you know, the beginning of doing uh, art shows and stuff and just, and getting a kick out of that, you know, having like the interaction with people, showing your showing your work and stuff like that, so. You know, I, I don't know if you know what I do. I mean, I make films and I do yeah. general reg, and for me, it's all one thing. It's all one form of expression. Yeah. I'm wondering how, you know, how you relate to that. I like to say I just took my chances. Like, you know, I think what gave me the, the push was the fact that from 1990 to 94, before I started doing photography, you know, I was a pro skateboarder who had, because of that, a voice and a following. You know, I had an interview in a skateboard magazine. So immediately I'm realizing, like, I'm the tables have turned. I read magazines with the pro skaters. Now I'm one of these guys. What what's what am I gonna do? I have the spl- I have the, the mic. I have the mic now. What do I you know? Like I wanted to say something. Well, I want to use this platform wisely. I realize that kids are gonna be inhaling everything I say. Let's be a positive force. Let's be a force for good. You know. So like I made a point in my first interview to like speak out against homophobia, which was like in the skate culture, which everyone thought was hip and cool, is actually super homophobic and weird in a lot of ways and sheltered. And like kids from suburbia aren't that cultured in a lot of ways so you know i just wanted to like say something and that that was what number one and then number two was just like having the show at a ledge gallery and you know i look back at it and don't think it was good but you know at the time i guess people liked it and i that spawned another show so everything spawned something else and it just kind of went so yeah painting photography but then at the same time even like graphic design so the minute i started a company we had to do advertising i don't know how to do that you know so i have a friend who knows how to do that the first three ads a toy machine i'm sitting over shoulder every single button he pushes i'm like what was that for what did that do and he taught me and I, so I, then and then like you know four or five ads in i start doing it myself really crappy, really rudimentary, you know? But there's a charm to it. I think the kids who are looking at the ads realize like, oh, this is Ed Templeton doing this. Like, again, so you get that little leeway of like, he's a skater, so, you know, it's not a great design going on here, but at least he's one of our own. He's like, yeah. that's kind of cool. We, we support it, you know? And then over the years, you, you start learning stuff. So now I'm designing my own books. I'm like, you know, I can design skateboard graphics. I, you know, so I can basically run every aspect of what I'm doing. And I, get, I would imagine like for you, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, you can run it all. My friend Kevin's a, a, a skateboard filmmaker, yeah. and he starts. He's here to do London Phil, uh, School of Film now, you know. And he's just racing through it because in that world, everyone's so specific. Like, I want to be an editor. I want to do this. And he comes from a world where he's like, I built a skate video from the ground up. I filmed it. <laughs> I edited it. I got the music rights for it. You know, I did everything. I built a whole production yeah. from the ground up all myself, you know. There's a term over here for these new young people that can do it all. Predators. Predators. <laughs> Producer, editor, director. Okay, yeah. Because I'm from the old school where I, you know, I just direct. I just have ideas. Okay, and yeah. I actually embrace the idea of other people being um, technically proficient in whatever aspect. Like the sound man's a good sound man, the cameraman's a good cameraman, there's the set designer and all the rest of it. Right. And I like the fact that all these people working on these, they're experts in different fields, can work towards a common goal. That's, you know, that's I really true. like that 
thing about filmmaking. That's, the that's luxury, how it used to be. That's the luxury we didn't have. Yeah. Like in skate in the skateboard world, we didn't have these like specialists that would do everything perfectly. You know, we just had to like improvise and do it ourselves. And that's kind of like what built someone like Kevin or myself. And you were over here to do what? The Deadbeat Club. What was that about? So a friend of mine, Clint Woodside, I broke my leg four years ago that really badly, like shattered shattered both bones and at age 40 and kind of, you know, pretty much retired me from being a pro skater <laughs> uh, officially. And uh, during this time that I was laid up on the couch, uh, he came to me and said, hey, I have this idea. I want to do like a, a zine collective. Our culture's always made these, you know, fanzine type things where we just, again, do it yourself. You like go to Kinko's and just, it's a way to share your work and give away stuff, you know, so. It was big in the 77 punk thing. Big yeah, you know, you show up to a place and you're like, hey, here's yeah. a zine, here's my new zine. You just give it out and like you know he came to me and said hey like, i want to do this thing where i'm gonna like make zines for you and I, so i saw it as like oh so i don't have to like go to kinko's and do it all myself anymore like you're gonna basically produce the zine and sell it like i, I don't like have this to be, idea. I don't do it myself yeah, anymore. I'm, getting, I'm getting lazier and lazier <laughs> as i get up but now here's a way to like i'll still be able to make a bunch of zines and and you're gonna like because the thing i hate is like getting orders and selling like if that kind the of business stuff, stuff the business the stuff business i hate stuff. doing I'm that, so, that i'm like so you're gonna like yeah. get the orders and send them to kids all over the world this is great let's do this you know and through that he's like do you know anybody like that that would be cool like instantly like this is the thing i love about my position in the world is that I can help people, you know, that's really cool. Like, I, I love finding the kid that is authentic and doing it and giving him a shot. That's my favorite thing ever is like, so, and I, you know, I, so I felt Passing like- on the energy. Totally. And, uh, and I, cause I felt like, every, you know, I got so many help, helping hands along the way that it's just like really cool. So, you know, like, so Devin Briggs and Grant uh, Hatfield and Nolan Hall were all guys that were, you know, they're out there shooting and doing stuff, but they didn't necessarily have a lot of opportunities. Like, Again, I had these opportunities because people knew who I was. Like, I can walk into a place and they go, oh, Ed Templeton Skater, I grew up watching your videos. Like, they love giving me a like, chance to do something, but these other guys, they don't necessarily. So we started, like, I was like, do zines with these guys. They shoot film and they going out and shooting photos, documenting the suburban scene we live in and how weird it is. And uh, that's how it started. And then suddenly people started inviting us to do shows, you know? So like a gallery will say, hey, let's do a Deadbeat Club show. We just started doing that. I'm like, oh, that's fun. And then there's a lot of other people who have done zines with us now. So, you know, in theory, we could have like 14 people in a show and do a fun do-it-yourself type of show and that's kind of what this turned out to be I mean I was here uh, a year ago and I visited Huck for some reason I don't even know why now <laughs> went to see their space and they're like how about doing a show here and then from that point on it's just like wrangling like it, like usual you know finding money find, figuring out like I went to the clothing company I work with Ruka and said hey we want to do this show will you guys pay for all our flights you know you just wing it and ask yeah, them yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might say fuck off and they might say yeah let's do it and they said, okay, we'll do that. So we got, I got basically everyone flown out here for the show. What was with the title Memory Foam? Memory Foam was, uh, me and, both me and Deanna shoot our hometown, basically, Huntington Beach. There's a pier there. As our daily, like, whole couple thing, we just, like, let's get out of the house and take a walk on the pier. But it's also our photo, like, our photo walk, so we'll go and shoot photos. And like I said, Huntington Beach is sort of like Venice, but not as crazy. You know, there's, like, homeless population. There's, like, people going out and doing street busking. So there's a scene there. Some days are better than others. But, you know, so we'll just walk and shoot. And that show called Memory Foam was about that. So it was kind of, like, about a way to, like... Seeing the art in everyday life? Well, like, you know, using the word for, like, like Seafoam and then Memory as photography is like a, is a funny name for a show. I just, I love to come up with fun names for shows. So Memory Foam was just about. I thought Memory Foam was, there's this thing called Memory Foam where you. No, that's, I mean, yeah, it's a play yeah, on words. It's yeah, a play yeah, on words. Yeah, it's, like, okay. it's like using Memory Foam in a different okay. way. Like, yeah. Memory, like Memories and Seafoam. Okay. Shit. And you only started to appreciate what was around you by traveling and taking a step back, right? 
realized its value and its interest by going abroad and stepping fresh sure. away from it. For sure, yeah. I mean, still, every time I come back from Europe, when you get out of the airport and get onto the freeway, it's a culture shock. Done it a million times, but it's still like you're here for a couple weeks, everything's a little smaller, a little older, and then you get there and it's just like, fucking 20 lane mega highway, you know, like, which would be a landing strip for an yeah. airport here, you know, it's like, but that, and it goes all the way down forever. So it kind of takes you a second to like realize like, oh shit, I'm back here. Uh. But yeah, only the last like seven, eight years has my painting really like started coming out of like specifically the suburbs. I'm interested in making paintings that are about the weirdness of specifically where I live, you know, though we live in these housing tracks that have walls around them. And so all the streets are just like walls. It's like you go down these streets and it's just wall, 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 house, 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 behind the walls. Everything's kind of hidden in these little housing tracks. So it's kind of like just a weird place. Part of the drive was like, at some point I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go to LA or New York and like, you know, and like grow up and get out of my little, my little hometown. But then I think a mixture of doing the skate company, which is uh, shipped out of San Diego. So I didn't want to go too- And got you around the world. And I don't want to go too far in. And the fact that I got to travel, like, so I get to leave all the time and I get to do other things, but then I get to like relax in this, like, it is like a, a quiet suburb, you know? It's like, there's nothing going on and that means you can work. I'm, yeah. I'm not in a city where there's like constantly something going on and like a show or a, a something yeah. to go to, you know? So it's kind of nice in that way you can like become a hermit and get your work done. It's funny, I've grown up in London. I never wanted to leave this place because I travel a lot <laughs> I'm coming like yeah, place is rocking. Well, yeah, you you were already you were already in a cool spot. That's yeah. what I mean. If I like if I was happened to be born in LA, I, yeah. I probably wouldn't have left either. Although having said that, when I was growing up, it was a very different place, and all this kind of multiculturalism didn't you know didn't exist. There's a lot of racism, all kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask. And you that about kind of that. that stuff kind of made me stronger, to be honest. I wanted to ask you about that. That was something a question I had for you. I just knew I was going to do this podcast, and we were just at the Tate Britain. There's a photography show there uh, on currently about. Um, the 60s black culture in London at the 60s. There's a guy, Sid Shelton. And I thought maybe you had I known. I think I know the name, yeah. Because he shot like the skinheads. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I just did a documentary about skinheads. He had some, he had some cool photos. I actually shot like Which I've got to tell you now on this podcast, because a lot of Americans don't knew, know this. It was actually the first multicultural movement in this country. It started as an amalgamation of black and white kids together through music and fashion. Right, yeah, here in London, yeah. yeah. And then over the years, it got hijacked by the whole right-wing National Front thing. It started off as a multicultural movement. Yeah, I mean, I was was stoked when I see old photos from like the punk shows and stuff that that was a mixture you know because like my punk shows that I went to when I was young were like super white you know (laughs) although you know I I mean I see the evolution of hip hop when it started as black American punk rock when it started I mean hip hop has now become hip pop but underground movements become a part of the overground. Even the ve- development of reggae was a punk rock thing. And these guys couldn't do all the fancy shit, so they made an asset out of just skanking on the guitar. You know, yeah. punk rock. So this is when I, I was a kid when all this shit was happening. I used to have a big fucking afro. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I, and I was like, so I knew I was doing this podcast, yeah. and I was like, man, Don was like living in this period. That's pretty cool. Like, I mean, I tell people, stuff. you know, when I was growing up, the graffiti on, on the walls of my streets were big letters, KBW, six feet high, keep Britain white. Oh, That's wow. why I used to walk past every day going to school. Yeah, were there like, you know, Nazi well, you skinheads have, yeah. here? Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it very quickly got hijacked by the right-wing motherfuckers, basically through football. And they were actively targeted by the right-wing politicians to become like um, a ready-made army. You know, and they played up the lack of housing and the people are stealing our jobs and these fucking immigrants. Same shit that's doing now. Yeah. Same tricks Same that they're using now. I mean, they say that Margaret Thatcher stopped the football rioters. It wasn't Margaret Thatcher, it was Ease. And the hooligans started taking ecstasy and that was it. it chilled the whole thing right out. I remember going to raves and I'd be dancing with these guys and I'm like, hold on a minute. 
if I saw you in the daytime, I'd be crossing the street. <laughs> and they'd be like, and they'd be hugging you up, right, done. Big sweaty guy. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Downtown Huntington Beach, the little, you know, one street, you walk down there uh, to the pier, as late as like late 80s, I guess. Um, I wasn't part of this group, but some of my guys I know, some friends, they literally walked around with necklaces with mouthpieces because they got in fights with skinheads so much. There was so many skinheads hanging out in, in Huntington Beach, like racist guys, that they, they, some of my friends, they had these, they just wore mouthpieces because they're like, we're going to go down there, they're going to say something to us, and we're going to fight the skinhead guys. And they put their mouthpieces in and start fighting. Shit. It was that, like, so many fights all the time. And now it's just like, there's fights, but it's like drunk people at bars and everyone's an MMA fighter now, so they want to like try their skills, <laughs> like you know. So, but yeah, not as much like cultural stuff. But I mean, there's a photo in the show of uh, some punks kissing that I shot, and you know, you can see he's got the freaking white power tat. He's got the German thing that he has a circle with no swastika in it. Like I'm sure when he gets a little older, he'll put the swastika in there or something. But and I saw that kid at the Trump rally. He was a fucking racist, you know. He's still a racist white power kid. Odd question just popped in my mind. Where are the girls at in the skateboard scene? Are not there as, many on skateboards? No, there, there are, and it's increasing a lot. I mean, we were the first company to sponsor a girl and turn her pro. So we had the first girl pro street skater. I mean, there was a girl, Kara Beth Burnside, who was a pro before Alyssa Steamer. But Alyssa Steamer, the girl who was on my team, was like the first street pro. And when was that? 95, 96. On the water, there's lots of female surfers, right? And I just wonder why, yeah. when they got to land, they kind of disappeared. In a traditional sense, skateboarding is really brutal. It is a total boys club and there's like the cultural barrier with just the boys being boys and assholes and stuff and sexist and whatnot. Then there's the physical part of it where it's just like you're literally throwing yourself down sets of stairs. And I think because of these yeah, cultural yeah. things... I, like I think I'm getting it now. Girls just ain't that stupid. <laughs> There's that, so there's that, no, but there's a culture, yeah, but yeah. there's a cultural thing yeah. where girls are now approaching like, I can do this, you fucking assholes, you know, like, but before there was like a, uh, that barrier of like, I don't know, like, you know, it was like a novelty kind of thing. Yeah. And now, and now I think those, those things are eroding and, and it's a lot, of, I see a lot of girls at skate parks and there's a lot of girls, I mean, the girl just, we just had a girl on the th cover of Thrasher, Lizzie Armando, and she's doing really good. And there's like some I mean, real groundbreaking parts coming out, video parts. Is it an Olympic sport? Yeah, they're trying to get to be I Olympic sport. I think this sport. year it's going to be an Olympic sport. This will be first? I'm on the, I'm on the side that it's not really that interested in that. Mm. You know, like I'm on the skateboarding as a lifestyle and, and it's antithetical to the Olympics, you know. When I think of the Olympics and scoring, you know, it's like you look at ice skating and it's like you have to do a triple axle and this and this and this to even be judged yeah. properly. There's nothing like that in skateboarding. It's so... Fluid. It's so fluid. Yeah. It's so subjective. Well, again, it's that trying like, to define you know, things. This guy can skate one way. Kills it. It, it, to me, it, it kind of does. It'll be interesting to watch. And I think skateboarding has kind of like grown so much that there's branches now coming out. And that's just one branch that I'm not as interested in, but it's a valid branch, you know, it's it's fine. It's like there's a, a contest skater, sort of like, you know, a little more jockey sort of mentality to skateboarding. And it's the commercial side and it's like, and then there's the other side that's like still existing over here. And you don't, maybe you don't see it as much. A lot of people from my generation are kind of like, they whine about it like, oh, skateboarding used to be cool, man. And it's like, you know what? It never changed. All these underground movements eventually become part of the overground, and then there's always the hardcore people that remember what it was that keep it real. Right. You know what I mean? And that's the dynamic of any subculture. And I think the reason that new subcultures keep coming up is young people are trying to reclaim this language, yeah. becoming part of the corporate world, I guess, you know. It's an ongoing struggle, man. Yeah, and, like, there's a whole thing about selling out, you know, like, what is selling out now? Like. 
the today's generation, that's the goal. Selling exactly. out is the goal. That's their aspiration. That's what they exactly want. right. <laughs> that's what they want is to sell out. And like, you know, you and maybe I come from, I mean, even me, I'm much later than you, but like, you know, again, with Fugazi as, a, as an example, it's like. Having, they were extreme. I mean, they were really yeah, extreme. But having a moral yeah, thing, yeah, you know, yeah. like we're vegan, so it's like. I mean, I've, the fact that they had a moral compass was a good big deal to me. You know what I mean? That they yeah. cared. And, I, and that's the thing. It's like, so your reputation is all you have, really. Like, that's how I see it. It's like, it's, it's really all you have is, like, who you are. Like, it's what you are. So I mean, I look know. at my name as a brand, you know, and I'm always trying to protect no, it. No, that's and, how it is, you know? So, like, my shoe company that I wrote for was, like, always let me make non-leather shoes to their credit, you know? And it's like, that's awesome. I can do this. I could, like, hold up my end of, like, my moral beliefs or whatever and, and make a non-leather shoe and, you know, just stuff like that. So it was kind of cool. I think I always will identify as a skater, you know, but there's so many hats. Let's say you get on a plane and someone next to you goes, what do you do? I just like make a choice. Cause I could say a businessman, I could say an artist, I could say a skateboarder, I could say a company, you know, whatever. Like you just kind of decide what you, what you want to talk about to somebody that day. Cause there's a lot of things going on. I think that's how everyone is now. I, I think everyone's branched into a thing. Like, you know, look yeah, at all the stuff. Look at all the stuff key. you've yeah, done yeah, and what yeah. you're doing now. You're doing podcasts, you're doing DJing, you're doing films. It's like, it's not just one thing. Yeah, and it's all forms of expression, really. I mean, I guess that's the dividing line between whether it becomes you know, something I enjoy or a job. I mean, I'm one of these guys that gives thanks that I can make a living just doing stuff I enjoy because the truth of the matter is most of these pl- people on the planet... They do shit they hate for fuck all money, you know, and that's reality. That's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't mind being rich. But that's right, <laughs> that right there is the nugget, though. That's that's the core uh, sentiment, I think, for me as well. It's the only what, way what forward, you express yeah, is yeah. like the feeling like uh, never forgetting it. Yeah. Like I feel like you hold on to it so preciously because you're like, I don't want to be that guy digging a ditch, yeah. you know? It's like so important to like do a good job. Like Listen. I want to do the, I want to make this show good and have people be stoked and I want to be nice to all the kids who come up to me and like, you know, want my autograph. I'm like, I want this to keep going. I want this ball to keep going because I don't want to have to do stuff I don't want to do mm. from to pay the bills. Kind of I mean, thing. I watch the news every single day, man, just to keep me <laughs> grounded and so I don't disappear up my ass worrying about what I call first world problems, you right, know. Yeah. I mean, literally every day of my life I watch the news somehow. I like to stay connected too in that way, for sure. Like I said, I was self-taught, so... Like right now, I'm in the middle of like doing all these photo things. I'm gonna do a photo show in New York in June. That's a big show for me at, at a gallery there. And uh, so I've been kind of like printing photos and doing that and stopped painting for the last couple months. Each time I go back to it, I feel like I've learned something somehow. And it's through osmosis. Cause I'm like, what, how did I like, cause I'll look at the painting and go like, this is better than the last. Like I look back three years and I'm like, this painting's way better. How did that happen? Like I haven't been painting. I don't know how it works, honestly. I mean, I think it's just looking at stuff and learning, like looking at other like you know you go to the national portrait gallery or the national gallery and look at these like old paintings and and you just pick up a little thing like look at this you get up close and you're like oh he must have used like a really tiny brush to do this i can do that and then you know and the next thing you know you're <laughs> like next thing you know you've learned it. That. but that's the way that's the way to go man that's yeah. it next I thing you know you've that. learned it yeah that's right <laughs> I just think about the Mohawk itself as like an example. Like the Mohawk is benign now, you know. I say the Mohawk is benign. It was benign back in the day, dude. I never knew anybody that had a Mohawk or a safety pin in their face. That was something that was created by the tabloid press. Yeah. See, this is what's interesting. This is what's interesting because you grew up in it here, like in the fucking epicenter of it. I'm growing up in a bastardized version of in California because there was kids with like... Safety you know, pins and Mohawks. I've got to tell you something about the new <laughs> California scene because there's an interesting theory. I did a film called Punk Attitude and in that film, I learned that the reason that the East Coast scene and the West Coast scenes developed so very differently because the East Coast, they got the clash first. That's okay. their example of yeah. punk rock. West Coast, 
they got the damned. Okay. And within the punk scene, it was theatrical, (laughs) flamboyant, wasn't so politicised. And that's why the LA scene is supposed to have developed. And a lot of the guys like Dead Kennedys and the Germs and all that, I mean, I've talked to these people and they'll testify that, yeah, the dam kind of gave them their idea of what punk was about. And that's why it's a very different scene. Actually, going back to that, politics in the skateboard culture, does it exist? Yeah, I mean, during this last election, a lot of pros did come Well, a lot like, of people got out. politicized after that arsehole got elected, you know what I mean? For it's sure. a shame that it's taken a decade like that for people to get off their asses. Yeah, I was hoping that this would uh, create sort of like, I mean, look look, what, look look what Reagan did to the punk scene in California. Yep. I mean, like every single song was about Reagan. I'm like, where's our dead Kennedys right now? We need that fucking Same in England, where's our Johnny, fucking, Rot- you know, yeah. our jo- Johnny Rotten's or Joe Strummer's and all that stuff? I shot John Lydon before. How was that? Was it? Was he okay? Was he on good behavior? I was very intimidated. I heard all these stories that yeah. he's really mean to people and stuff. He might have been a little drunk already. Um, so we go to his house in Venice. There, yeah. uh, there's a football game he wants to watch, and I could tell this was a huge inconvenience. And I, you know, I wanted to be authentic. Yeah. You know, so in my head, I'm like, if you just want to sit here and watch the football game, go ahead. Keep drinking. I'm just gonna shoot photos. If that's cool, we can just hang out. I just want to hang out with John Lydon and like shoot photos of you sitting on your couch. And he's just like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I'm fucking serious. Like, because he thought he had to get in some costumes, go out and find some find some walls and stuff. You know, which is what most photographers would say. Like, we need to get. You know, and I was just like. Literally just sit here and watch the game, and I'm just gonna shoot photos. And and so he's just like, "Fuck yeah, like, let's do this." I know. I got some cool photos of him that I really liked. I mean, we did walk around his house, and I got some photos. And you know, like I didn't want him to make his like trademark yeah. face, but he kept doing it. <laughs> um, but I got some photos like without that, and uh, I sent him to the magazine. And they, I think it's so was so different from what they wanted. They didn't even use him. Nice no, trick. He, yeah, you know, he's, he's trip, got man. his whole like soundboard right there in the house, and he's but he was just like watching an Arsenal game and. Drinking a beer and it's, you know. I just... I'd always owe that brother because he was the first man to take me to Jamaica. Okay. You know, and that was a trip, believe me, because he went after the Pistols broke up with uh, Richard Branson to start this reggae label up. So he, they land on Jamaica and it's like these jungle drums are beaten, you know, rich white man on the island, come on, get some money. Because <laughs> for the next two weeks, we sat there, and this is when I'm like 18 or 19, so all these legendary names that I'd previously seen on record labels, they're all now sitting around me trying to get a deal with Rich and Branson. And everybody except sort of Bob Marley, Peter Tosh and Burning Spear. I met every one of them in two weeks. Think about that. Imagine sitting in some place and all your heroes are all around you. And the funniest thing was they're all trying to blag drinks off you because they're all fucking broke. Because I'm thinking, okay, their name's on a record. They must be doing all right. Not at all. Major lesson. The distance between the myth and the reality, you know. And this is where it comes full circle because it's like I never listened to too much reggae or anything my whole life. But then reading interviews with Ian McKay in the early days, he was claiming at how the Fugazi songs are so influenced by dub music. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like brought it full circle. And I was thinking of you and I thought that I'm like, well, here's another connection. Like, you know, one of my favorite bands is basically fully influenced from the dub punk stuff that you probably created or helped create, you know. Well, I passed some records on to some of the cool guys yeah. like John Lydon and Joe Str- but that yeah. the English but you were interest... instrumental in that whole thing, and like hear it, and it, I guess so I, was a, a, I, I was a cultural. Had he conduit. had he not done that, I might not have had Fugazi to be like you know. So in a lot of ways, everyone. Uh, it's uh, interesting how the culture has kind of brought people, like people to together. Like, but I'm I'm a I'm a direct product of that whole punk DIY thing because if I hadn't met those guys, I probably wouldn't be sat before you today. And it was through the whole punk DIY thing that I picked up a Super 8 camera and literally reinvented myself mm. as a filmmaker. You know, because I really couldn't, I, 
I'd seen a film years before, but yeah. how do they come? And I thought, well, I'd like to express myself visually. Couldn't see a way forward. And then Punk comes along eight years later with the whole DIY thing. Picked up the camera, and like and you, you never realized. went to film school, never read the instruction book. Just kind of self-taught. Yeah, he just do made it. up as I went along. He just do it. Yeah. That's the main thing I tell kids now, because kids will come to me and ask, what's the path? How do you get to that point? You know, like as if there's like a ladder or a path, a map, I could just go, here's how to do it. I just say, start participating. Whatever scene you're in, start being a participant in it. Show up at the shows, make zines on your own at Kinko's, it's cheap. Just do the stuff that you see your friends doing and it happens naturally. It takes time. Like, you James know, Brown but, put it quite succinctly, get up and get involved. That's, I mean, really, it just boils down to that. Like, I just, they think that there's something, like, I have to do this or this or this. It's like, no, you just... They want an easy... Yeah, they want an they easy want path. Blueprint. Okay, what do I need to check But there's not a blueprint. It's just doing it. It's just doing it, and it evolves. Like, And, it, you know, it's hard for a kid to realize this, because I'll say fast forward 10 years. I'll be like, do it, and fast forward 10 years, and guaranteed something will happen for you. If you've been doing what you're doing for 10 years, you've got it. It's hard to fathom, like, 10 years of doing something, you know? But it really goes in a heartbeat, you know? And that's the test, I guess, is, like, if you're sticking to it in 10 years, then you've probably got something. Otherwise, you've probably Man, fallen I can, out. I get young people asking me for advice these days, and I, like, shudder, because I, I say to be fucking great or have a B plan. <laughs> that's the, and the other one I say to them is... Um, Draw fast, shoot straight, and don't hit the bystanders. I got that from an old Western back in the 60s. That's funny. There's, a, there's an old skate saying, skate, uh, think fast, skate faster, and don't look back. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't look back. I like that one, though. Thank you for downloading Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is brought to you by Spaces in Between in association with Size and TCO London. That's tcolondon.com. Pick up your copy of the beautiful Spaces in Between magazine in your local size store. That's 100 pages of print goodness. Subscribe to Joining the Dots at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining the Dots was hosted by Don Letts. Michael Fordham is the producer and editor. Sound recording and design was by Rob Taliesin-Owen. <laughs>